should be on. Hello, hello. Cool. Okay. So my name's Brad. I'm the youth worship pastor here. And like Aaron, we are leaving soon as well. Uh, but enjoyed the cricket game last week. Uh, enjoyed the picnic. Enjoyed the time together. And didn't so much enjoy looking at Daniel chapter 11 this week. It is it's challenging. And so I wanted to start with quick question, think amongst yourselves, within yourself, can you name two or more challenges that you have faced this week? Two or more challenges that uh, have you've experienced this week? Little think, bring, see if you can bring two challenges to mind. We'll give a moment for that. Maybe a big challenge, maybe just a little challenge. So losing cricket for me last week was a bit of a challenge. I say that as a joke, but actually losing is quite challenging, isn't it? Losing well. Thinking about putting things in place for us leaving Bentley has been a challenge as well. Doing that well. Playing ultimate frisbee during the week uh, in a team and a guy gets right up in my face in defense and he's kicking and uh, that was a challenge. How do I respond to that? On the world scene, as we've heard, the hate and the violence demonstrated throughout the world in New Zealand these last few days, that's a challenge. It's not directly affecting me, but how do I respond to that? And then, yeah, looking at Daniel 11 has been a challenge as well. Because Daniel 11 is very complicated. It's confusing. Uh, It would probably be fine if I was just reading it at home by myself, but having to prepare a sermon on it has been a challenge. Daniel chapter 11 is challenging because there's been so much said about it over the last 2,000 odd plus years. And that naturally brings lots of different thoughts and competing arguments, different voices, different assumptions. Daniel chapter 11 is challenging because it's based on the supernatural appearance of an angel who tells the future. Does that happen? Did that happen? Can it happen? Why doesn't it happen to me today? That's challenging. It's challenging because it deals with themes and stories that are much nicer not talked about, like persecution, like pain, like suffering, like revenge, like true and proper worship. Ultimately, as well, it's been challenging for me because when I bring all this together and get ready to stand up, I want to do a good job. I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to be made a fool of. And that's a part of my story, but stepping into that challenge as well. We have challenges everywhere. Through reading and preparing this week, I came to this question. What does Daniel 11 show us about facing challenges? And first of all, I think challenge, it shows us that challenges are inevitable. This chapter shows us that challenges are going to come. There's not much we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about that. Quick recap, last week we heard that Daniel had been fasting and had been praying and asking God the question, when can we as a country, as a people group, head back to Israel? When can we head back to Jerusalem? How much longer do we have to be exiled away from the temple? And he's asking God this question, we want to be able to worship you properly. And then an angel appears and delivers a vision, tells Daniel of some of the things that are about to come, opens his eyes to some different sort of circumstances at play. The world is different than first appears. And then we are into Daniel chapter 11. And it's typically divided up into two main sections. It's a pretty big chapter. It's a big vision. And so it's divided up 
uh, from the end of chapter 10 to verse, try and get it right, till verse 35, and then verse 36 onwards until a little bit into chapter 12. So there's two main sections. And why this distinction is made in this chapter, it's to do with the challenge of interpreting the chapter. So it can all be boiled down to two major arguments because this angel rocks up and he gives the vision of what is going to be in the future. But then the things that are actually recorded, the things that are said, they actually happen pretty much exactly as our history books say they happened. And so the question is asked, was it recorded before that happened? Was it a vision, a prophecy before things happened? Or has it actually been written down afterwards as an afterthought? And they're the two main questions. But the trouble comes because so much of what is said in this main section, so that first bit in green, a lot of that can be followed through in terms of the historical events that happens in the ancient Near East. A lot of it matches up. So one thought says that the accurateness of these events, based on the other records that we have, show, well, it's just too accurate. So it must have been written afterwards. It can't have been written beforehand because it's just impossible that it was written before. So that's one, uh, one view, view. And then the other view says, well, no, God can actually know the future. God is able to communicate. And so it's not unreasonable that he would be able to tell what was going to happen precisely. There's a catch, though, because at verse 35, all of the following predictions. So that first bit we can trace, oh, yeah, that happened there. That could have happened there. But afterwards, so that last bit, it gets a little bit more confusing because those things recorded in that bit didn't actually happen and follow on from what was recorded previously. And this is where you get all the infinite theories about who could be uh, referring to here. And Google doesn't help much at all. It just brings up so many different options and different views as to what could be happening. So that leaves a couple of questions. Did Daniel get some of the predictions right and some of it wrong? Did he hear it wrong? Or has it been attributed to the wrong events and none of it's actually happened? Or has it just not happened bit? So just that question mark bit, has that just not happened bit? And there's just a time gap between the two happening. I didn't really want to mention any of this, but it's hard not to because the challenge just seems uh, so complex. But I think it's important to outline that there are legitimate questions raised about the passage and there's legitimate answers offered in both ways. A whole bunch of evidence that you can look and literary text and looking at bits and pieces but we won't go in that today. But there's legitimate uh, answers given on both sides. My view is that God does know the future, that God has a plan for how he wants that future to uh, be lived out, and he is able to communicate to us. As to what the specifics are of the prophecy, well, I'm not too sure, and I'm okay with that. I keep coming back to Jesus' statement about how no one knows what the end times is actually going to look like or when the end times will start. That's recorded several times in the Gospels. He talks in parables about it and he talks in teaching about it, how we can't actually know when the end times are going to start. No one knows. Only God knows. But I also keep in mind Aaron's guiding principle when we looked at Genesis last year, how we can, in our maturity, We can bring different views and we can bring uh, these respectfully to each other, even competing views. And so we hold all of these things in a bit of tension today, but a lot of it can be speculative. And so, yeah, we hold that immaturity. So we're going to take a quick 
bird's eye run through most of the first section of Daniel 11, verses 1 to 28. might be easy to follow along in your Bible. We'll highlight a few of the key parts on the screen. But straight away in verse 2, so a quick run through of what happens in Daniel 11. Verse 2 talks about some kings from Persia. So at the start of the book of Daniel, Israel, they're taken as captives. They're exiled into Babylon. So the Babylon is the kingdom. But then now we're starting to talk about Persia, so a different kingdom taking place. There'll be three kings, and then there'll be a fourth king. He'll be richer than all of them, and he's going to go and look out. He's going to go and try and find trouble in Greece, and he will find trouble. In verse 3 to 4, it talks about this kingdom of Greece. It says there'll be a warrior king that will dominate the known world, and this will be assumed uh, to be from Greece, and it's attributed to Alexander the Great. There we go, Alexander the Great. So looking back and looking at the prophecy, we say, oh yeah, that looks like Alexander the Great in terms of what happened. He conquers most of the known world. It's the biggest empire yet seen, but at his death, the empire gets split into four different directions, four different ways, which is what Daniel says will happen. And then from verse 5 onwards for the rest of the chapter, we have this struggle between the north king and the southern king. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms And the North King heads south and wins a few battles. And then the South King heads north and wins a few battles. And then the North King heads south and wins a few battles. And it goes around and around a little bit like that. There are daughters given in marriage to try and uh, create alliances. But these are often betrayed. Then there's death and there's greed and there's revenge. Back and forward, back and forward. And I find it a little bit hard, a bit confusing to know who is who. Trying to follow who might be referring to who. But scholars, if you read some commentaries, uh, they can follow all the different leaders and they say, this is this person and this is this person. Uh, And they do that with remarkable clarity. But the general gist, there's bigger armies. There's bigger armies. There's bigger armies. It gets crazier and crazier and worse and worse. And through this, from other sources, we learn that Israel, they're probably stuck in the middle of this. They're stuck in the middle of this tension. At verse 21, this guy rocks up. The northern kingdom gets a new king. The king is bad news for Israel. Armies shall be utterly swept away and broken, Daniel sees. Priests of Israel, they'll make bribes to try and gain office. And this guy, he's going to decimate and take whatever he wants. Looking back, we commonly assert that Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, was this king that is being referred to from verse 21. And especially from the faithful in Israel, from their point of view, he's very bad news. After trying to conquer territory in the south towards Egypt, so he heads from Syria down to Egypt, Antiochus gets stopped. And Daniel sees in his vision. After this, the two kings, each with evil evil designs on the other, will sit at the conference table and trade lies. Nothing will come of this treaty, which is nothing but a tissue of lies anyway. But that's not the end of it. There's more to this story. The king of the north will then go home, loaded down with plunder, but his mind will be set on destroying the holy covenant as he passes through the country on his way home. So the holy covenant here is Israel, talking about Israel. Israel is about to be subject to hard times, to takeovers, to wars being fought all around them, and not necessarily because of anything they have done. 
It's just going to happen. Be it struggles in the spiritual realm, which the angel from the previous chapter talked about, he had a hard time getting there, or be it struggles of humankind's competing ambitions. Whatever the reason, Israel, in its location, it's in the main thoroughfare between Egypt and Syria, they're going to face challenges. And so this makes me wonder, well, are our challenges the same as Israel's? If I think about it, mine haven't been. Though we remember that there are certainly people in the world today that are sadly stuck in the middle of military conflict, not of their own doing. But if we step back from that context a little bit, the fact that in this instance, Israel, they're not being told that they're being punished. It's not that they've done something wrong like they were told before the exile. It's just that these challenges are just going to rock up on their doorstep. I think we can relate to this. Maybe it's a phone call that comes out of the blue. Maybe it's a message that you weren't expecting. Maybe a doctor's trip that comes as a surprise. Maybe a test that you forgot was happening and you rock up to school or uni and, oh, there's a test. Maybe a decision that your parents make that affects how your life is going to be. Or maybe it's a decision that your kids make that is going to change what life is going to be like. We live in a world that is forever changing. This will inevitably bring challenges. We don't have to look too far to find them. And so I don't think it's too helpful to get bogged down in which king could have been this king and who was going where and who could have been this, who could represent who, when and where. Some people love that. Uh, I do, I get sucked into it a little bit to a certain degree, but I find myself going around in circles and it doesn't actually lead anywhere, I don't find. Especially when you end up with so many competing ideas, different interpretations. So given the inevitableness, inevitableness of challenges, the fact that challenges are going to come to us, let's continue looking through Daniel. We'll see that we have a choice how we respond to challenges. Now, there's one group in Israel, one group of the Israelites, they respond out of self-interest and they uh, respond out of revenge and looking after themselves. Brings us to the second part, chapter 11, verse 29 to 45. So if we take uh, this king to be Antiochus, Antiochus heads to Egypt again. So he goes on another trip down south. But they've asked the Egyptians, they've asked to get help from the Romans who arrived by boat, and he stopped. And this time it shall be not as it was before, Daniel says. For ships of Kittim, Rome, shall come against him, and he shall lose heart, and he shall withdraw. He shall be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay heed to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. This king, he went to pick a fight, and he got a lot more than he bargained for. The same thing actually happened to his father. In verse 19, Daniel sees that the bully is going to head south and the bully will be bullied when Antiochus III heads south. He gets turned back from the Romans again and then has to pay massive taxes and that creates a whole lot of issues. But the same thing happens here to his son. To simplify it, Antiochus IV heads down south. The bully heads down for a fight, trying to prove that he's the strongest trying to gain some ground. He gets stopped, he gets shamed, and so he has to head back home. And on his way back home, he sees the little guy sitting over on the side and he takes out his frustration on him, on them, on Israel, the Holy Covenant. 
And so from reports outside of the Bible, other historical documents, uh, we see that he performs countless atrocities on Israel. He forces them to stop their traditional worship of God, their God-given way of worship, forms of worship. He desecrates the temple, altar, and makes them desecrate their bodies. There's a real threat of death. Terror has become the norm in Israel at this time. They're told they cannot observe the Sabbath. There's shame, ridicule, and death if they continue to circumcise, if they continue to pray, if they continue to sacrifice, or even read their Bible. All their scriptures are burnt. The altar is desecrated with unclean animals. And in this challenge that is brought upon Israel, Antiochus, he's looking for anyone who will deny worship of the true God, anyone who will forsake the holy covenant. And if he finds them, if he finds anyone, he will elevate them and he will give them power, he'll give them safety, he'll give them wealth. These are the things we remember that Daniel has been trying to distance himself from throughout the whole book, to fast from. Sadly, there are some that do this. And like Aaron did a few weeks ago, I say that with reluctance, not with judgment, because if I put myself in their shoes and what they're going through, I don't know how easily, I don't know how I will respond. I know how easily I shut down at challenges today. I don't know how I might react in their situation. But the fact remains, there's a bully in town. He's picked a fight. And yes, he's stronger. Yes, he's got power. But some people give in. They don't just give in, but they end up supporting him. They go about doing his violence and hateful bidding just so they stay safe. So the challenges that we thought about before, or more challenges we might think about, the challenges that we're facing, they might not be necessarily from a bully. It might not be rooted in revenge. It might not be coming from a place of greed. But the challenges we're facing might be from these things. Challenges we're facing might not be physical or emotional threats. Might not be about manipulation or seeking power and control, but it might be. When challenges come upon us, I think we do well to think about who have we aligned ourselves with? Who are we trying to please? Does our faith in God stand firm or are we being tempted to forget God's God's kingdom principles? Are we being tempted to forget to be caring for our neighbours, loving for our refugees? Are we being tempted to forget to look out for the widows and the orphans and those that are suffering domestic violence, those that are being picked on in the playground, no matter what race or religion or background or stories they have? Like some of the Israelites, does our self-interest end up taking priority? Does our self-protection motivate us, leaving the poor behavior that's being exhibited by someone going unchallenged so what's the alternative and how might we not lose faith how might we not lose heart but instead when faced with challenge of immense weight how might we respond in faith remain faithful well there is some in israel that do that daniel eleven thirty-two to 35 but the people who are loyal to their god shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall give understanding to many for some days. However, they shall fall by the sword and flame and suffer captivity and plunder. When they fall victim, they shall receive a little help 
and many shall join them insincerely. Some of the wise shall fall, so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time at the end, for there is still an interval until the time appointed. So it's not a rosy picture, but we see that there is another option. There is another group in Israel who don't just give in, but stand up, stand firm, and take action. Stand firm in their faith and relationship with God, and through this, take action. Now, this standing firm is actually going to be really costly for them. They're going to have to put it all on the line for God, for love. Importantly, the action taken in this prophecy is like the rest of Daniel. It's an action of non-violent resistance, which through education in this place, in this time, through education, faith in God is taught. Faith in God is lived out and caring for widows and orphans and refugees. Worship of God is held in high importance. It is still taught. It's not just something to be rolled over for personal gain or security, just taken up when it seems right or nice. It's this stark difference that we see highlighted throughout this whole chapter. One way of living, one way of doing life is this war machine which heads south and heads north, which is constantly after more and more. More land, more slaves. The other guys head north and they want more money and more land. The north guys head south and they want more slaves and they want more power. And around and around it goes. You better go and conquer, control them before they move towards you. That's one way. But instead of revenge and hate, God's way is to surrender our desires for revenge. Instead of putting faith in ourselves, put faith in God, surrendering to God. To seek to bring his love and hope to all people. And that's somewhat easy to say, but super hard to live out. This is big. But to remind us that we are on the right track, if we fast forward, we think of Jesus when he's faced with what seems his biggest challenge, the crucifixion, the night of his crucifixion. He's in the garden. The whole world is against him. He's got some friends, but they're about to desert him as well. The whole world is against him. Leaders are telling him to renounce who he is, say, who he, uh, to turn from who he's meant to be. The temptation to forgo this, this imminent pain, was so real. Not just physical pain he wanted to avoid, but emotional and spiritual, a whole lot of pain he's about to step into. He prays, desperately that he might avoid the crucifixion, that another way might be found. Yet, still he chose to stay on that path. He chose to step out in faith, to step out in hope, to remain on the path of love. And it cost him dearly. He's so committed to this path that he corrects Peter, who in the heat of the moment whips out his sword and tries to, uh, tries to make things happen through power, through might. All who take out the sword, Jesus tells him, will die by the sword. And sadly, that's the story of ancient and modern history, isn't it? We see gruesome tales of conquest, betrayal and death. In the ancient world, no sooner had you got to the top of the pile, no sooner had you become king or leader, than you had to start looking over your shoulder. Because someone was going to try and take your spot. It might be a friend, it might be a family member, it might be an enemy but someone is going to try and get you. 
But there's another way. There's another way to see the world. There's another way to see challenges which come upon us. And that got me thinking about something we do at youth group semi-regularly. We do this little activity as a part of our devotions. Let's think about it for a second, for a sec. In this activity, we pose a hypothetical problem. Uh, maybe like your friend lied to you about wanting to, you asked to hang out, and they lied to you saying they couldn't. Or hypothetical problem like your parents won't let you go to the party. Or hypothetical challenge like you forgot to do your homework and the teacher asked you to do a presentation. A challenge that is likely, it might happen at some point, we brainstorm three possible actions with this. We then choose one and we think of what are some outcomes if we chose that action. Quick example, so if your friend lies to you about being busy when you ask them to hang out, three possible options that you could do or you could stop being friends with them or you could give them a chance to explain why they lied or you could act like you never knew their friends lied. Just pretend it's all okay. And so randomly or for fun, we choose one. And this time we chose act like you never knew your friend lied. It's not necessarily the best thing, but hey, let's see what happens. Potentially, your friends keep lying to you. If you pretend, well, they'll just keep lying. Or potentially, you get really upset and you spread rumors. You start beef uh, because of the internal turmoil that you're facing. Or potentially, everyone forgets about it and it all ends up okay. Who knows how it could play out? But we do this activity to give a chance to actually think about it, give a chance to think about, hey, there are always multiple options of how we can act, how we can react, how we can live out when challenges come our way. There is always a choice as to how we confront a challenge. Some of them might end up being no-brainers and we don't need to go through a whole list of things to do. But there is always a choice. Through this, we want to give some practice to our young people. Think through some options before they're chucked into a situation that they've never thought about. Hopefully this helps it make it easier when they do come across similar situations. At least they've got the awareness that there are different ways of responding. But as I reflected about this process, I think this is actually a major reason as to why we come to church. This is why we gather together. This is why we make why we practice spiritual disciplines. This is why we pray. This is why we read scripture. This is why we're encouraged to fast. Be it food or Netflix or whatever it is the world is trying to control us through, comfort us through. We don't do these things. We don't gather together because we should. We don't do it because that's what good Christians do. We don't do it because it'll make us more loved by God. That's not possible. God loves us as much as he ever could. We do this. We come together to learn. We come together to discern. We come together to be encouraged and equipped so that we can then step out in faith and stand up for what matters when the going gets tough, even when the challenges get really tough. Through learning and growth, through refinement and submission, we can see that God as demonstrated in chapter 11 of Daniel, has been bringing his kingdom and is building his kingdom. He's been doing it for thousands of years and we can choose to be in it. We can choose to represent it and what it stands for. We can stand firm and we can take a strong stand, but importantly, this needs to be done in love. That's the way of his kingdom. 
Daniel chapter 11 foretells those question marks that we looked at the start. A series of battles. But the whole chapter looks at this conflict. And it's a conflict that rages on and has been raging on. Good versus evil, evil versus good. There's a whole bunch of words that you could put up there. But today I've chosen revenge and control versus love and faith. And when we see atrocities like what happened in Christchurch, the world rightly groans, the world rightly condemns, the world mourns. The pain and flawed view of revenge and control is so obvious, so obviously wrong, not the ideal when we see it in such extreme actions. It's so obviously sinful, not the best way to live when we see it in the news like that. But I think we face this alluring call every day. We face it in big ways, in small ways. Take it. You deserve it. How dare they say that to me? That's not fair. I did it on the Frisbee field during the week. How dare you? That's not right. Fight or flight or freeze. Get out of my face, but it leads nowhere good. Daniel 11 ends up as those question marks we looked at. With the probably future king or leader, so probably someone in the future, right on the verge of domination. Having it all. Having power, having wealth, having money, having land, being feared by everyone. They will ultimately, though, die alone we see in the end of Daniel 11. There'll be no one there to help them. Despite all the allies that they tried to bribe and force to protect them along the way, revenge and control will not bring life. Love and faith, on the other hand, has the power to unite, has the power to grow, has the power to flourish, and is the way that Jesus revealed to us is the way of God's kingdom. It's the way we were made to live. So, when we notice challenges are present, and they are forever present, when we become aware of these challenges, may we breathe, may we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we notice challenges are upon us, may we listen to God. May we listen to the voices around us, consider other ways of responding. May we especially consider the small, marginalized voices. And when we feel the pull to self-protect, may we know that we are loved by God. God knows us. God then calls us to love all those around us, even if there's a cost. This is hard and this is big, but it's the story that we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, You see the world differently than we do. You have a plan that is so often different to ours. So God, we ask that you would show us your way. God, we believe that that is rooted in love and faith, in kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And so God, may we honour these things. May we lift up these things. May we celebrate these things. Spirit, help those things to be manifested in our lives. Help us to be the difference in those challenges that we're facing. 
as we pray, as we listen. God, may we know that you love us. You know us, and throughout all history, you are working towards something good. You are working towards something big. The crazy bit is we get to be a part of it as well. Help us to do that well. In your name, amen.